Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Alright. Uh, welcome everybody. Welcome back. Uh, Sutra Study Sunday. We are going at it again <clears throat> with our Pothapata Sutta Part 2. This is what we did last Sunday. This is our little big, actually, this is our big sutra on the states of consciousness. That's the theme this month, the states of consciousness. Uh, was anybody not here last week? Few, okay. Oh, that's right. Okay, so um, this sutra, the Pothapata Sutra, <clears throat> um, it's number nine in the Diga Nikaya here. And we went through the beginning of it last uh, Sunday, and so I'm not going to, I'm actually really want to attempt to summarize where we're at quickly so we can get to a new idea. I, I never mind hanging out on old ideas, but. Um, so I'm actually just going to quickly paraphrase the setting of this and what brought it about and quickly run us through where we're at. So, uh, thus have I heard, we're in Shavasti, classic place, Anathapindika's park, usual spot for a sutra to take place. But there, there was a wanderer, a kind of a rival group of, of ascetics and philosophers there was a wanderer named Pothopatta. That's the reason why the sutra is called Pothopatta Sutra, is it's kind of to this guy or about this wanderer named Pothopatta. And him and all his students were sitting around uh, in the park, and they were shouting and making a great commotion, indulging in various kinds of unedifying conversations, such as about kings, robbers, ministers, armies, dangers, Relatives, carriages, you name it. They were talking about all kinds of stuff, right? And then what's funny is, is that the Buddha came to see Pothapatta. And when Pothapatta saw the Lord coming from a distance, he called to his followers and ordered them saying, be quiet, gentlemen. Don't make a noise, gentlemen. The ascetic Gotama is coming and he likes quiet. And he speaks in praise of quiet. If he sees that this company is, not, is quiet, then he will most likely want to come and visit us. So he tells everybody, shh, shh, And so sure enough, the Buddha comes over and says, what were you guys talking about? And Potapada is like, eh, don't worry about what we were talking about. Last week, though, it was very exciting because we were talking about the higher extinction of consciousness. That's what the sutra is about. The higher extinction extinction of consciousness. And Pothapatta asks the Buddha, what do you teach about it, right? And then the Buddha goes through what is a classic, meaning it appears in many sutras. He goes through a classic description of the Buddhist path, beginning with leading a life of moral discipline, shila. Now, I didn't spend a lot of time on it last week. This sutra actually takes it out and just says, see sutra number two and come back when you're ready. So there's a gloss of when the Buddha is teaching Pothapatta, 
his, meaning the Buddha's technique for the cessation of, of uh, the higher extinction of consciousness, he says, for me, it begins with moral discipline, morality. No killing, no stealing, not ta- or taking what's not given, sensual indulgence, all of these things. And then, a monk who's perfected in morality, seeing no danger from any side, he can then guard the sense doors, right? And this is, would be equivalent to pratyahara in the classical yoga system of withdrawing the senses, keeping an eye on the eyes, ear, nose, tongue, body, and even the mind. And then he walks Potapata through this process. This is the Buddhist way leading to the cessation of consciousness. And then he says, and I just want to reread this because it's helpful for our month, and if you weren't here last week. He says, guarding the sense doors, he reaches the first dhyana, or jhana. There's a polytext, so they're going to say jhana with a J. I've written up there dhyana, the Sanskrit. Same word, same idea, same thing. Having reached the first dhyana, he remains in it. And whatever sensations of greed, desire that he previously had, they disappear. And at that time, there is present a true but subtle perception of delight and happiness, born of detachment, and he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training, and some pass away through training. And this is that training, said the Lord. So again, if you weren't here for any of the talks... We're talking about this process of of deeper mindfulness, deeper meditation, concentration, what he calls training or mind training in the sutra. And through enough concentrated focus, sati or shmurti, concentrated focus, one enters into a jhana, an absorption, as it's sometimes translated, a meditative state in which there is delight and happiness and an awareness of that delight and happiness. Again, a monk, with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and unity of mind, reaches and remains in the second jhana, which is free from thinking and pondering, born of concentration, filled with delight and happiness. His former true but subtle perception of delight and happiness, born of detachment, vanishes. At that time, there arises a true but subtle perception of delight and happiness born of concentration, and he becomes one who is conscious of this delight and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. So that's the second jhana, going deeper. Again, after the fading away of delight, he dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, and he experiences in his body that pleasant feeling of which the noble ones say, Happy dwells the man of equanimity and mindfulness. And he reaches and remains in the third jhana. His former true but subtle sense of delight and happiness, born of concentration, vanishes. And there arises at that time a true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness. And he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. Again, with the abandonment of pleasure and pain and with the disappearance of all previous joy and grief, he reaches and remains in the fourth jhana, 
a state beyond pleasure and pain, purified by equanimity and mindfulness. His former true but subtle sense of equanimity and happiness vanishes, and there arises a true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. And he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle sense of neither happiness nor unhappiness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. So he's just walked us all the way through the four jhanas to the state of equanimity, which this sutra is defining as equanimity equal equality of joy and grief, happiness and unhappiness. So this fourth jhana state here is being measured by this total equal equilibrium, right? Again, by passing entirely beyond all bodily sensations, by the disappearance of all sense of resistance, and by non-attraction to the perception of diversity, seeing that space is infinite, he reaches and remains in the sphere of infinite space. And in this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. So this is where we spent basically most of our time last week was talking about this infinite space, clarifying ideas about space. And from this chart, entering this infinite space, uh, if you weren't here last week, an important thing to understand is that these are the four jhanas of the realm of form. These four that we're going to talk about tonight, actually, I'm going to actually kind of talk about all four, are formless. And very quickly, if you weren't here for any of these talks, the basic view here of Buddhism is that the world that we see can be understood as being this dimension called the Kamadatu, or the realm of desire, where we kind of see what we would like to see, and the example that I used was this optical illusion of the, a picture that, if you look at it one way, it looks like a wine glass, but if you look at it a different way, it looks like two faces looking at each other. Everybody tonight familiar with that optical illusion? Yeah? And the way I described um, this third realm, so these three realms, the realm of desire, Kamadatu, the realm of form, the Rupadatu, and then the formless realm, the A-Rupadatu, if you imagine that optical illusion, the mind that either, as I said previous nights, maybe they're lonely, they're looking for a partner. So when they see this optical illusion, because of where their mind's desire is at, they're going to see the two faces looking at each other. But if you have somebody else who is a wine connoisseur, loves wine, spends all their days just surrounded by wine glasses, the kamadatu, the desire realm of their mind, they're going to see the wine glass in the middle. And the point of this optical illusion, of course, is that it is not a glass nor two faces looking at each other, but the desire of the mind will see what it would like to see and get out of that. So that is the realm of desire. You would like to think it's a glass or you would like to think it's two faces, but it's not. It's a form that your mind can throw onto it the desire of the glass or the people. And so if you were to imagine through a meditation process of sort of ridding the mind of desire so that one can just see the form 
of this sheet of paper. The curved lines, the separation, but without the projection of the wanting or the needing or the desiring it to be this or that. So that, the, the, the eyes that have been cleared of desire and can just see form, this is the realm of pure form. And these four dhyanas are in the realm of form. Meaning that when I'm in the realm of desire, I'm seeing a bunch of wine glasses or a bunch of fa- whatever it is, whatever my mind is, it's like, oh, look. And I think it's just out there to be perceived. Just like I would look at that optical illusion and just think, well, it's a picture of a glass. What do you mean? And somebody else is like, it's not a picture of a glass. It's a picture of two people, right? Who's right? Which is it? Well, we're both right, or neither of us are right, right? Sort of all depends, right? So the mind, through the meditation, that is like, okay, I'm not going to project my desires. I'm just going to be in the realm of pure form. Again, these dhyanas are in the realm of pure form. And so if you had an object like a candle flame, for example, and that was the object of your meditation, in the realm of desire, it's going to be very much the flame that you see, the flame that you think of, and you will have all kinds of ideas about where that flame came from and what you could use it for and whether it's pretty and whether it's hurting your eyes, all kinds of ideas about it that are coming from the realm of desire. But through the meditation, the mindful concentration on it, by settling down and getting rid of the kleshas or getting rid of that desire of the mind, one would arrive at just the form of the candle flame, just the, sh- the form, the shape, raw. And that would be in the first jhana, moving the second, third, fourth, always using that object as the anchor But there's this, um, I mean, if you understand that transition from the realm of desire to the realm of form, right, that it's a very subtle transition, right? Because what I want to keep reinforcing, this image has not changed and it will never change. But the mind is what is changing, right? And so there's the mind that could only see the glass. But if I calm my mind down, maybe listen to a few of my Dharma talks or whatever, Now it's like, oh, okay, I'm just the form, just the form. And it can kind of get like a little magic eye action where you're kind of getting blurry. And then what I'm getting at is that eventually through this meditation on whatever it is in the realm of pure form, this eventually gives way to just space. And again, this is what we spent all last time on. And I kind of am afraid to even... You crack it, because I have a feeling we would never leave the realm of infinite space, right? So, and because I want to get to some stuff, I just want everybody to understand, well, don't open that box. Don't open it, right? I was just about to, too. Okay, so we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But that's my two seconds on space. Again, again, bypassing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite space, seeing that consciousness is infinite. He reaches and remains the sphere of infinite consciousness, vijnana. In this way, some perception arise through training and some pass away through training. All right? 
And what I mentioned last week, just very quickly, is that there's this really intimate relationship between space and consciousness, and that consciousness needs space in order to conceive of the world it's in, in order to understand anything. In order to understand what's on this table, it requires the space, right? The space between them. Consciousness and space have this intimate relationship. And what's happening in this sutra is, is that that idea of just space, room, just availability, that is the, that through your candle flame or through whatever it is, you pass out of the realm of the form of it into this realm of space. And you are meditating on this space, the, the quality of space, the allowance of space, the, that, that space. And then that space is removed. And there is just the consciousness that was once meditating on the space, but now there's no space to be meditated on. So there's just consciousness, just discriminative awareness, kind of maybe sort of meditating on itself, but that just starts to split hairs. This is a deep meditative state in which the, even the quality of space has been removed and you're just consciousness. <laughs> Vastness. Vast consciousness. Again, passing entirely beyond the sphere of infinite consciousness, seeing that there is no thing, he reaches and remains in the sphere of no-thingness. And he becomes one who is conscious of this true but subtle perception of the sphere of no-thingness. In this way, some perceptions arise through training and some pass away through training. And this is that training, Potapata, said the Lord. Potapata, from the moment when a monk or a nun has gained this controlled perception, he proceeds from stage to stage to stage until he reaches the limit of perception. When he has reached the limit of perception, it occurs to him, mental activity is worse for me. Lack of mental activity is better. So when he has reached the limit of perception, it occurs to him, mental activity is worse for me. Lack of mental activity is better. If I were to even just think or imagine of something, these subtle perceptions that I have just attained would cease and coarser perceptions would arise in me. Suppose I were to not think or imagine at all. So he neither thinks nor imagines. And then, in him, just these subtle perceptions arise, but other, coarser perceptions do not arise. And he attains cessation. Nirodha. And that, Potapata, is the way in which the cessation of perception is brought about by successive steps. What do you think, Potapata? Have you heard this before? No, Lord. I have not. And he goes on and actually repeats exactly what the Buddha just said. So let's stop there. Questions, ideas, or comments? Is cessation nirvana? No, according to some. 
According to some schools and kind of the, the Theravada school in general, Narodha cessation is nirvana. Not all, ther- not all early Theravada schools think that. Mahayana, definitely not. Um, it is a deep part of the practice. And I mentioned, I think at some point, I'm doing these Friday night Dharma talks and these talks, so it gets confusing, but I mentioned at some point that this, and this skips it, but it's implied by this limit of perception idea, which is this state of neither perception nor non-perception. Neither nor. Uh, I, I mentioned this before that even before the Buddha, but even within Buddhism, it's understood that if you achieve this state of neither perception nor non-perception, there's some kind of karmic memory wipe that happens. And it's necessary in order to go all the way to nirvana, according to the schools that don't think that that is nirvana. So, trying to answer as accurately as I can. Yes? Question. Um, there's one word that it, 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 it just confuses me a little bit. Yep. It's infinite. And Great. I just, it, 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 I, I mean, space consciousness, no thingness, if I don't, if I don't hear infinite, I'm good. Yep. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> At some point, I did this, I think last week, because it, we're, we're good Dharma students here. So I want everybody to know these are actually called ayatanas, plural. And an ayatana is a base a base, it's, it's what you put it on. And so when they say akasha ayatana, they mean make akasha, make space, this crazy idea of allowance, make that an ayatana, a base of your meditation. And because akasha, space is such, akasha is a wild idea in like Indian philosophy, it's like a really wild idea. And so in order to really get across to you how wild it is, in English they call it infinite space. Even though it really is just space and you're to understand it's like all pervading everywhere. Same thing, and this is just the vijnana ayatana, the base of consciousness, which then they call infinite consciousness. But it's not in it. Same thing with the akinkanya, it's the akinkanya ayatana, nothing infinite about it. It's just that these ideas are kind of so big that for the English speaker will, you know, so good that you were sort of like, I don't know about this. Because in many ways, the idea of finitude and infinitude up in these realms is sort of like kind of misleading. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Okay. Yes? So as you're going into these states, does it like happen naturally where you go into the next day or are you actively like, oh, I'm going to change the ayatana to, like, from space to consciousness. So does that part, like, automatically happen? No idea. <laughs> um, I have never read or seen anything that speaks of that. I mentioned uh, at some point that um, I went through the whole Pali Canon getting ready for this month, and you never find, like, just the realm of space hanging out. It's always in this order. It's always actually very quickly said 
that, oh, the monk goes here, and then he goes here, and then he goes here, and then cessation. And so it's like, wow, that easy? That quick? Does it just happen automatically? So, yeah, I don't know. Um, it, would, it would kind of seem that it's not entirely the natural order of things, because there, do, there does seem to be some detours or some other exits one can take off this freeway, if you know what I mean. So th this particular order may require a little bit of attention in that way. But I, I want to share with you something. Uh, there's a book I brought in this book that maybe I'll talk about later, but there's another book that I don't have because somebody has borrowed it called, uh, it's okay, I, I loaned it to you, um, On Being Mindless. It's a great book. You would love this book, Anand, On Being Mindless. And it's about this state of neither perception nor non-perception and kind of this idea of the limit of perception. And one of the big, this will, it kind of addresses what you're asking. And so it's the best anecdote I have. But in that book, he spends a lot of time, not because the author is interested in it, but because Buddhism is interested in it, which is when one is going into these states and one has reached this state of neither perception or non-perception, the question is, how do you come back? It's this huge question in Buddhism, which is by what act of will does the person decide to come back out when the definition of this is you're gonzo. You're gone, gone, gone. There's so no you, no this. You're not even having, you're not even having a perceptive experience anymore. And so this question of, so how do you turn that off and come back was a huge one in Buddhism. And actually, not necessarily like schools split up over it, but there's a lot of ink spilled on paper about how it is. The mainstream analogy is that it's like a dream and that how do you know when it's time to wake up from a dream? Do you consciously wake up from a dream? No, you just wake up, right? That's the mainline answer for how you get out of that is just when the time's right, you return. But I just say that to let you know that there's a lot of question about how I'm not, there's a lot of question about agency in these states, right? Which is in that state, how then do you, if, if the whole point of this is to not have desire, right? And you're getting less and less desire filled because there's less and less to be desireful about, then when you're finally in this state where there's no longer anything to be desirous of, how does the desire to come back to this world, where does that come from? If you have completely removed the base. And so even in that, they're like, oh, you got this person saying this, this person saying that. So sort of along that, those lines, though. All right, before I go further, I just want to make very, very clear that this samya, I did it right this time, I did it in the right color. So this whole sutra is actually talking about samya. Even though they're talking about, like, consciousness and in this state, like, they're talking about vinyana, but the reason why it's in orange here is because they're actually talking about the quality of, of vijnana. Not actual vijnana, but, like, the quality of space and the quality or lakshana, if you're down with my language, lakshana of consciousness. And then the 
lakshana are qualities of no-thingness, of which they're getting very few, very, very few qualities or characteristics, very few lakshana when, when there's no thing anymore, right? So what I want you to see in this progress from the kamadhatu, rupadhatu, arupadhatu, through the jhanas, through these samadhis, or these formless jhanas, I want you to see that what happens is, is you start with the flame, <laughs> and there's you, and the flame, and there's the room, and there's the temperature, and all this stuff. And there's so many um, lakshana, so many stimuli going on. And this process is about getting the number of stimuli to be less and less and less and less to the point when you finally arrive at infinite space, you're basically left with just these few little qualities. So your mind should not be very disturbed by this. You're really left with actually even, this is the formless realm, so we have no shape, color, number, size to this stuff. This is, again, like just meditating on the quality of space, the idea of allowing, you know, then you remove even that subtle lakshana of allowance and you are left with just this subtle lakshana of discriminative awareness and then even that gives way to nothingness, no thing. The idea is that even that has trace limited subtle perceptive qualities that then eventually you are left with no perception, right, at all. And the question, of course, becomes like, well, why would somebody want to do that? He says here, this is crazy, right? Suppose I were to not think or imagine, right? Or, or this other line, mental activity is worse for me. Lack of mental activity is better, right? All right, so everybody cool with what's going on? We're all perfect, 730. I did it. <laughs> new, new territory, here we go. So cool. All right, so I'm going to skip. This is a large sutra, and I'm going to skip some stuff. I'm, it's for a lot of reasons, but Pothapata, so I ended with this part where he's like, so what do you think, Pothapata? Have you heard all that before? And Pothapata's like, damn, I've never heard that before. We were over here doing God knows what. You've got this whole system, right? So then... He starts asking the Buddha, like, do you teach that the summit, the limit of perception is just one or that it's many? And then the Buddha says, I teach it as both one and many. And Lord, how is it one and how is it many? According as one is, according as a monk is, he attains successfully to the cessation of each perception. So I teach the summit of that perception. Thus, I teach both one summit and perception. I also teach many. This stuff's dense, confusing. It's appealing to these like logical arguments that sort of are not, in my opinion, worth us diving into because it's just we're not involved in these philosophical conversations to begin with. So I don't want to waste our time hashing out why the Buddhist view is better than this other view, right? But then he goes, yeah, it's this interesting, he says like, Lord, does perception arise before knowledge or knowledge arise before perception or do both arise simultaneously? Stuff like that, okay? But then he asks, Lord, is perception a person's self 
Or is perception one thing and the self another? This is Pothapada's question. And the Buddha says, well, Pothapada, I'll ask you, do you postulate a self? So if you were here for the 62 erroneous views talk, think of that. He, Buddha asked him, so do you posit that there's a self? Right? And this is where it get, the language is very tricky, but I tried my best to, to work this out. So Pothapada answers like this. He says, well, Lord, suppose I postulate a gross self, material, composed of the four great elements, feeding on solid food. And then the Buddha responds, but with such a gross self, Pothapata, perception would still be one thing and the body another. You can see that it, that it is true in this way. Given such a gross self, certain perceptions would arise in a person and others would pass away. And in this way, you can see that perception must be one thing and the self another. So then Pothapata says, okay, suppose I, I postulate a mind-made self, complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. The Buddha responds, but with such a mind-made self, perception would still be one thing and your mind-made self another. Then he says, well, Buddha, suppose I postulate a formless self. So we're, we're moving our way through these, by the way. This was the gross self that eats food. This is the one of form that's not defective, right? With all of its parts, not defective in any sense organ. And then, Lord, I, I assume a formless self made up of perception. And then the Buddha says, but with such a formless self, perception would still be one thing and the self another. So then Pothapada says, but Lord, is it possible for me to know whether perception is a person's self or whether perception is one thing and the self another? And this is how he responds. He says, Potapata, it is difficult for one of different views of a different faith under different influences with different pursuits and a different training to know whether these are two different things or not. Wow. So then he says, okay, but how about this one? And this is a section I definitely need to skip over because I want to get to this later part. But there are these famous 10 questions that the Buddha refused to answer, right? Um, such as, is the world eternal or not? Uh, does the, the Tathagata, meaning the Buddha, does he exist after death or not? And there are these 10 questions that the Buddha famously refused to answer, Okay, and so Pothapata says, what about, and he goes through the 10, what about this, what about this, what about this? And then he ends by saying, so Lord, why has the Buddha not declared these things? And the Buddha answers Pothapata, they are not conducive to the purpose, not conducive to the Dharma, not the way to embark on this holy life. It does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. That is why I have not declared the answers to those questions. But Lord, what has the Buddha declared? Podapata, I have declared this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, and this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Four noble truths. But, and this is why I brought you here tonight. 
Potapata says, but Lord, why has the Lord declared this? Why? Because, Potapata, this is conducive to the purpose, conducive to the Dharma, the way to embark on the holy life. It leads to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation to come to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. That's why I've declared it. So it is, Lord, so it is, welfarer, and now is the time for the blessed Lord to do as he sees fit. Then the Buddha rose from his seat and went on his way. Then the wanderers, as soon as the Buddha had left, reproached, sneered, and jeered at Pothopata from all sides, saying, whatever the ascetic Gautama says, Pothopata agrees with him. So it is, Lord, so it is, welfarer. We don't understand a word of the Asetagatama's whole discourse. That's why I didn't bother going through it, right? We didn't understand a word of it, right? Is the world eternal or not? Is it finite or not? Is the soul the same as the body or is it different? Does the Tathagata exist after death or not? Pothapata replied, I don't understand either <laughs> whether the world is eternal or not, whether the Tathagata exists or death after not, or both or neither. But the ascetic Gautama teaches a true and real way of practice which is consonant with the Dharma and grounded in the Dharma. And why should not a man like me express approval of such a true and real practice so well taught by the ascetic Gautama? So, it's the end of the first section. Two or three days later, Chitta, the son of the elephant trainer, to Pothapata uh, to, see, to see him and the Buddha, actually. Chitta prostrated himself before the Buddha and sat down to one side. Pothapata exchanged courtesies with the Lord, meaning the Buddha, and also sat down at one side and told him what had happened, meaning the previous thing that just relayed about the cessation of consciousness. Pothapata told Chitta up to speed. Yeah, and it, actually this section, there's a footnote about it. It gets very trickly, tricky in the Pali regarding the pronouns about who because everybody gets called Lord, so it gets tricky. But basically, these three people get together. Okay. I believe this is the Buddha saying, Pothapata, Pothapata. There are some ascetics and Brahmins who declare and believe that after death, the self is totally happy and completely free from disease. I approached them and asked if this was indeed what they declared and believed, and they replied, yes. Then I said, do you friends living in the world know and see it as an entirely happy place? And they replied, no. And so I said, have you ever experienced a single night or day, or even half a night or half a day that was entirely happy? And they replied, no. And I said, do you know a path or a practice whereby an entirely happy world might be brought about? And they replied, no. And I said, have you heard the voices of deities who have been reborn in an entirely happy world saying the attainment of an entirely happy world has been well and rightly gained. And we gentlemen have been reborn in such a happy realm. And they all replied, no. What do you think, Potapata? Such being the case, does not the talk of those ascetics and Brahmins that talk about happiness after death turn out to be silly? 
<laughs> kind of, sort of. But also this idea of like, how, where do you get such an idea that after death, it's going to be all happy? Have you ever been entirely happy? Have you ever had a moment? Like, it's an interesting question, right? It is just as if a man were to say, I'm going to seek out and love the most beautiful girl in the world. And they might say to him, well, as to this beautiful girl in the world, do you know whether she belongs to the Kshatriya class, caste, the Brahmin caste, the merchant or the artisan caste? And he would say, no. Then they might say, well, do you know her name, her clan, whether she is tall or short, maybe medium height, whether she is dark or light complexion, or maybe what village or what town she's in, or where she comes from. And he would say to all of that, no. And they might think, well then, you don't know or see the one you seek for and desire. And he would say, no, I don't. Does not the talk of that man turn out to be silly? And they all replied, certainly, Lord. And so it is with these ascetics and Brahmins who declare and believe that after death the self is entirely happy and free from disease. Does not their talk turn out to be silly? Certainly, Lord. It is just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace at a crossroads. People might say to him, well now, this staircase for a palace that you are building, do you know whether the palace will face east or west or north or south? Or whether it will be high or low or maybe medium height? And he would say, no. And they might say, well then, you don't know or see what kind of a palace you are building the staircase for. And he would say, no. Don't you think that man's talk would turn out to be silly? And they all replied, certainly, Lord. <coughs> Do those analogies make sense? Yeah. So there's a one way in which they're saying, like, a guy building a staircase, if he doesn't know which way the palace is going, that that's silly. Guy going to look for the love of his life, but he doesn't even know what she looks like or where she is. That's totally silly, right? So on the one hand, he's talking about these, um, you know, having desires without the specifics, right? But it, what's also being, like, referenced here is the roadmap. And the importance of, in many ways, I got a lot of encouragement for my Dharma talks and for these talks from this sutra, which is saying, Michael, it's okay to, to talk about and tell them about these states, even though I myself may not have been there. Because for me, the idea is this is the roadmap. This is the way the palace is going to face. This is what the girl looks like. Now you can go find the girl of your dreams, or now you can build the palace of your dreams because you know the way, right? And this kind of is a response to the first half of the sutra, which is the Buddha explaining to Prothapatta the Buddhist step-by-step -step process. So I just want to make clear that these analogies are kind of referring to that importance of knowing where you're going before you head off, right? Everybody good? Now it gets interesting. That was all preparatory. This is the Buddha, Potapata. There are three kinds of an acquired self. All right, so don't anybody get carried away. This idea is of a provisional self in the moment, <laughs> all right? And he says, Potapata, there are three kinds of these Atabhava Patilava. 
provisional self. A provisional, uh, what he called, what they translate as an acquired self. Now hold on. There's three kinds. The gross atabava, the gross acquired self, the mind-made acquired self, and the formless acquired self. What is the gross acquired self? It has form. It's composed of the four great elements. It's nourished by material food. What is the mind-made self? It has form, complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. What is the formless acquired self? It is without form and made up entirely of perception. Yeah, let, I'll stop there because I want to make sure we really understand what's going on here. So the reason why these are, are these acquired cells is because we have to keep our, our Dharma goggles on. We know about the self. We know about the traps of the self, the illusion of, of individuality, right? But this is talking about these sort of uh, acquired selves, okay? And what this will tie into, if you read other sutras, you do other Dharma study, is that especially in the Pali tradition, especially the Theravadas, they speak about being reborn in the realm of pure form. And then they speak about being reborn in the formless realms. So they speak about this as a reincarnation, like a rebirthing experience as you go through these. So as you move out of the Kamadatu and into the first jhana, they will describe it as a rebirthing experience in a body of pure form. And then if you go further, they will talk about it as being rebirthed in a body of, of a formless body made of what this says is entirely of perception. Okay? So, well, there's a lot here. There's a lot to that. I think the one thing that I would like to say, I mean, I'll talk all night about it, or at least what I got left of it, but if there's no self-self-self, meaning eternal self, always self, the self that was there when you were born, the self that was there in high school, the self that's here now, if you understand that there's no contiguous self always there, good. <laughs> that's the Dharma. <laughs> But there's still this situation going on here, which we would call the experiencer, right? There's still something going on here. Even though the Dharma wisdom tells me there's no essential self, and again, I always say this, even our modern science tells us there's no essential self. Even modern science tells you all these cells have died from birth the time you were born and been replaced. You're a new person all the time. So what exactly are you clinging to as yourself? That's the question, right? And you can go searching all day, but the easier thing is just to stop doing that stuff. Clean, right? That's the answer. But there's still this process going on of, I'm in the Kamadatu. I'm meditating, Buddha. Oh, I've made it to this first jhana. I've made it to this formless realm. So he talks about these atabhavas, these acquired selves, which he says are of three kinds. The gross acquired self, right? The, this is why that term acquired is very helpful because they're speaking about the, the self that's clung to, 
And you can cling to this gross self, right? So again, what is the gross acquired self? It has form, shape, right? It's composed of matter, what, what this says, the four great elements, but matter, right? And it's nourished by material food, right? What is the mind-made self? It also has form, shape. It's complete with all its parts, and it's not defective in any sense organ. Here's what's going on with that. I wanted to remind you of two sutras we read in the past. One is the Shurangama Sutra, if you remember about the, the guy, the, the blind guy versus the guy in the dark room and the, whether they can see or not. And the one guy who has, he has bad eyes. He can't see. Defective, right? But the whole point of that sutra was this idea of the mind that knows it can't see is not defective. Then we read the one where the old guy goes to the Buddha and he says, you know, I'm old, I'm sick all the time, it sucks. And the Buddha says, yeah, your body is, is old, that, yeah. But your mind doesn't have to be defective. Your mind doesn't have to be defiled. And that dude walks away like, he's like, oh, sweet. And that's the funny sutra where he never even asked how to, how to do that. He just was excited by the idea that the mind was one thing in a way and the body was another. This is saying that, and, and I guess, yeah, this is really actually what I wanted to really kind of get into tonight. I want you to think again about that optical illusion. And I want you to again think about the idea that you're looking at this piece of paper and in the kamadatu, with your mind and its desires, you're going to see what you want to see. You want to see some faces, you want to see a glass, you want to see a duck or a rabbit, right? Whatever it is, you're going to see it, right? That's the gross, that's the kamadatu. By doing the meditation practice, clarifying my mind, I can arrive at the realm of just form, just the shape, right? No projection of that on it, just the shape. And then if I really meditate on this idea of space and how space is actually allowing for all phenomena and all discrimination to happen, that can give way to just the infinite space where even the form is gone, right? Everybody, you, everybody down with that, right? I don't want to scare anybody. I don't want to freak anybody out. But what happens when you do that, what we just did? towards yourself. And what I mean by that is you look at yourself in the mirror all the time. You look at your body all the time. But do you look at it through the kama datu? Are you looking at it through the realm of desire? And are you seeing a wine glass or two faces? or a Which one are you looking at when you look at the self? How much actually of what you think you see is the kamadatsu. Because remember, there's no faces. There's no glass. That's your discriminatory mind being like, hey, does anybody else see a wine glass here? I do. It ain't there. So how much of that same kamadatsu projection is going on when you look at yourself, when you think about yourself? 
This is, that's a, it's a really wild thing to think about. But what they're talking about is that there's one gross body, eats food, and that if you can, through the dhyana, clarify the kleshas and just be in the realm of pure form, then turn that gaze on and you will see. It, that it has form and it's complete with all its parts, not defective in any sense organ. Very kind of see what's going on there? There's a lot of, uh, not everybody pays a lot of attention to it because I think they think it's, I don't know what they think. But there's so many sutras that it's an undeniable part of the path that you create what's called a mind-made body. That's a big part of it. And essentially, in a way, like transfer your consciousness to that mind-made body. And that mind-made body is not defective in any of its organs. Right? Meaning, even if you gouged out your eyeballs, you would know you can't see. And the mind that knows it can't see is not defective. See what I'm saying? It's from the gross world of Kamadatu that says, oh no, there's a defect. I got a cornea I can't see. It's an enlightened mind that understands, oh no, I'm seeing all this crazy shit because of this cataract in my eye. I'm seeing all of it. It's defective, but I understand where it's coming from. The mind that knows, the mind that understands is not defective. Right? And again, this is why in the uh, whatever sutra that was, that guy, that old guy was so happy. Changed his complexion when he heard this. <laughs> Literally. Shariputra was like, man, you look great. <laughs> what happened? He's like, I just got the ambrosia dharma top from the Buddha. <laughs> right? Okay. So now we have lots of time. Once again, Prothapata, there are three kinds of these acquired selves. The gross acquired self, the mind-made acquired self, and the formless acquired self what is the gross acquired self it has form it's composed of the four great elements and it's nourished by material food what is the mind made self also has form complete with all its parts not defective in any sense organ what is the formless acquired self it is without form and made up entirely of perception. But I, Pothopatta, teach a doctrine for getting rid of the gross acquired self, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending toward purification grow stronger and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now having realized and attained it by one's own knowledge. Now, Pathapata, you might think perhaps these defiling mental states might disappear and one might still be unhappy. That is not how it should be regarded. If defiling states disappear, nothing but happiness and delight develops. Tranquility mindfulness and clear awareness and that is a happy state that's the answer to the question
That's the answer to the question the other night. Why? Why? Why would anybody? Why? That's why. I teach a doctrine for getting rid of the gross acquired self, whereby defiling mental states disappear and states tending toward purification grow stronger and one gains and remains in the purity and perfection of wisdom here and now. Having realized and attained it by one's own knowledge. Potapata, I also teach a doctrine for getting rid of the mind-made, acquired self. And it repeats everything that was just said regarding the disappearance of them here and now, and that leading to a happy state. Right. And nothing but happiness and delight develops, tranquility, mindfulness, and clear awareness. And that's a happy state. And, Potapata, I also teach a doctrine for getting rid of the formless acquired self. Also doing it all here and now. Also leading to happiness. And that's a happy state. For getting rid of the formless acquired self. And this is great. Potapata, if others were to ask you, what friend? is this gross acquired self whose abandonment you preach. Being so asked, we should reply, this is that gross acquired self for the getting rid of which we teach a doctrine. And if others were to ask, what is this mind made acquired self? We should reply, this is that mind made acquired self the getting rid of, of which we teach a doctrine. And if others were to ask, what is this formless acquired self? We should reply, this is that formless acquired self. And what do you think, Potapata? Does not that statement turn out to be well-founded? And Potapata replies, certainly, Lord. So, pause there. Questions? Is that not the end, or there's more? <laughs> there's, there's more. I just want you to see another couple of, because I, I have a couple of exclamation points. I don't, know, I don't always remember what the exclamation points mean. Uh, yeah. So he goes back to the staircase. All right. So he says, now, after all of that, right, he says, it's just as if a man were to build a staircase for a palace, which was below that palace. They might say to him, well, now, this staircase for a palace that you are building, do you know whether the palace will face east or west or north or south or whether it will be high or low or medium? And he would say, this staircase is right under the palace. Don't you think that man's statement would be well-founded? Certainly, Lord. Okay, so at this, Chitta, elephant trader, said to the Buddha, Buddha, whenever the gross acquired self is present, would it be wrong to assume the existence of the mind-made acquired self or the formless acquired self? Does only the gross acquired self truly exist then? And similarly with the mind-made acquired self and the formless acquired self. Anybody have this question? I had it when I was reading this. I was like, 
curious. And so he says, Chita, whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not at that time speak of a mind made acquired self. We do not speak of a formless acquired self. We speak only of a gross acquired self. Whenever the mind-made acquired self is present, we speak only of a mind-made acquired self. And whenever the formless acquired self is present, we speak only of a formless acquired self. Chitta, suppose someone were to ask you, did you exist in the past or didn't you? Will you exist in the future or won't you? Do you exist now or don't you? How would you answer? Lord, Chita replied, if I were asked such a question, I would say I did exist in the past. I did exist in the past. I did not not exist. I shall exist in the future. I shall not not exist in the future. I do exist now. I do not not exist now. That, Lord, would be my answer. But Chita, if they asked the past acquired self that you had, is that your only true acquired self? And are the future and present ones false? Or is the one that you will have in the future the true one? And are the past and present ones false? Or is your present acquired self the only true one? And are the past and future ones false? How would you reply? And you know by false, you know, we mean like real, existent. So you can think about this in asking yourself, did the you from last week, does it still exist? Does the you tomorrow exist? So the, the language of false and true might get a little misleading. They're talking about like whether this is real or not, right? And Lord... If they asked me these things, I would reply, my past acquired self was at that time my only true one. The future and present ones were false. My future acquired self will then be the only true one. The past and present ones will be false. My present acquired self is now the only true one. The past and future ones are false. That is how I would reply. In just the same way, Chitta, Whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not at that time speak of a mind-made acquired self or of a formless acquired self. In just the same way, Chitta, from the cow, we get milk. From the milk, curds. From the curds, butter. And from the butter, ghee. And from the ghee, cream. And when there is milk, we don't speak of curds or butter or ghee or cream. We speak of milk. When there are curds, we don't speak of butter. And when there's cream, we speak of cream, not of butter. So too, whenever the gross acquired self is present, we do not speak of the mind-made or formless acquired self. Whenever the mind-made acquired self is present, we do not speak of the gross or formless acquired self. And whenever the formless acquired self is present, we do not speak of the gross acquired self or the mind-made acquired self. We speak of the formless acquired self. Everybody with this? But chitta. These are all merely names, expressions, turns of speech, designations in common usage in the world, 
which the Tathagata uses without misapprehending them. And at these words, Potapata the Wonderer said to the Lord, Excellent Lord, excellent. It is as if someone were to set up what had been knocked down, or to point out the way to one who had gotten lost, or to bring an oil lamp into a dark room, so that those with eyes could see what was there. Just so the blessed Lord has expounded the Dharma in various ways, Lord, I go for refuge to the Lord. I go to the Dharma and to the Sangha. May the Lord accept me as a lay follower who has taken refuge in him from this day forth as long as I shall live. But Chitta, the elephant trainer, said to the Lord, Excellent, Lord, excellent. It's as if someone were to not sit down was knocked up. Repeats the whole thing. And so then he says, May I, Lord, receive the going forth at the Lord's hands. May I receive ordination. And Chitta, elephant trainer, received the going forth at the Lord's hands and the ordination. And the newly ordained venerable Chitta alone, secluded, unwearying, zealous, and resolute in a short time, attained to that for the sake of which young men of good birth go forth from the household life into homelessness. That unexcelled culmination of the holy life, having realized it here and now by his own knowledge and dwelt therein, knowing birth is destroyed, the holy life has been lived, what had to be done has been done, there's nothing further to do. And the venerable Chitta, the elephant trainer, became another of the great Arhats. The end. Everybody saw what happened at the end with the words, right? So if anybody was start, starting to think like, wow, the Buddha's talking a lot about a self. He's really uh, like doubling down on this self. All of a sudden, right at the end, right? Just words, expressions in common usage. Right? So. There's a lot of parallels actually to all of these other sutras, but... When we did a number of weeks ago, we did the sutra on the 62 erroneous views. And I actually state, stated in that, in that talk that it's kind of wrong to speak of them as erroneous or sometimes they're called false views because the Buddha actually kind of says that if you have this worldview, the scientific materialist, this is just fancy dirt that's going to go back in the earth. If you have that view, that's reality. There's nothing, there's no other reality to have but that, and that you will live that life. But if you think that there's a heavenly realm, and you think Jesus is the way, the light, and the truth, and you're going there, you're going there. That's that. That's, that's true to that. Right? In the same way, it's saying he's saying that when you are in the formless realm, or in the realm of form, yeah, there is no gross acquired body. There isn't. You're in a, a realm of pure form or you're in the formless realm and that's where you're at. And there isn't. But when you are in the gross acquired body, going like, wow, I really look bad today. You're in the kamadatsu, in the grossly acquired body, having those thoughts. And it's real. Right? Questions, ideas, comments, answers? <laughs> Nothing. Shamatha, Vipassana, and then 
I guess you jump up to the uh, ayatana of uh, space, consciousness, nothingness. Is, is that our instruction? To... This roadmap, uh, these jhanas, these sometimes some called samadhis, sometimes called formless jhanas, doesn't really matter. So this map is the map of shamatha. Pure. I become a rock. Sort of. I don't have any perception. Exactly. This is the road to perfect, absolute stillness. No, um, no karma. Um, I, I don't know if I've ever said this, um, or I haven't said it lately. You know, in in um, Buddhism and Indian thinking, karma. This word karma. So not karma, desire. But karma and the two are deeply, deeply related, of course, both etymologically and in life. Karma means action. People think, you know, sometimes get, think it means some sort of like, you know, cosmic retribution process. Karma means action. And there's three sources of action, three sources of karma. The body. The, oh, look, doing some karma, doing some more karma with my body. The mouth, speech karma, right? Meaning I can affect you by touching you and I can affect you by speaking at you. So I can karmically use my body, karmically use my mouth, and the third source of karma is the mind. I can think about you. And what they'll say in kind of Indian thinking is that the things that I think become the things that I say become the things that I do. So it moves from the subtle to the gross, not gross icky, but gross out there. So we have the mind producing karma, the mouth producing karma, and the body producing karma. Right? If I were to get into this, which is not even the akshobhya, the immovable, the real immovable is if I could grab this big toe and my other big toe. This is a posture. Uh, it's an asana, and uh, as you can see, i got a ways to go. But there is a posture that if, if I have my arms around my folded like my legs and I'm grabbing both big toes, it is the most immovable. It's like a self-created straitjacket. It's the most immovable <laughs> that I can do with my body karma, right? And not actually, because even here, I need to you know, work on my... This movement, I need to work on the, this move. I've got a lot of karma still with the body. So this process is about bringing my body karma to absolute stillness. I zip it. And by the way, traditionally, uh, mouth karma goes both ways, meaning I eat and I speak. And so I fast and I take a vow of silence. So now my mouth karma, my body karma, and then all of that, is actually working on the mind karma. And the way the mind karma works is that it gets stimulated by lakshana and starts thinking about things. And so if I jettison all the lakshana and get it down to just space, my mind karma is like just going like... like Before it's like... And then if I go all the way to the limit of perception, either perception or non-perception, it's a stasis, a... And the idea is that I now have no karmic production at all. I'm not moving. I'm not. 
And they do actually speak of a state of, of motionless respiration where literally like a wind, air moves through you and revitalizes the oxygen, but the lungs are not actually doing this. It's like a wind, they just say, that just moves through you. So you are literally producing no karma. Yes, you've arrived at the state. Now they say again that you need to get to this state to have this karmic wipe of all your past actions, speech, and thought so that the Vipassana can really begin. So my point in all of that is that again, this is a process of bringing about absolute stillness, total shamatha, absolute absorption, dhyana. And it's the practice. (laughs) Zip it, none of it. What we've been doing is more the Vipassana, the insight, thinking about space, thinking about the self, thinking about suffering, attachment. That's all Vipassana work. So I've been doing this tricky thing of like using what would normally be the subject of shamatha for some sort of Vipassana exercise. Yeah? I want to, one time you drew kind of like a road, like the Hindus went here and the Buddhists went here, but they kind of met in the bottom. Is it, but shamatha and, and the quietness is the, 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 the same thing that the Buddhists are doing. Well, this is... get to the... To, to, Forget what the Hindu word was. Well, this is this actually speaks directly to this idea of here and now using one's own knowledge, right? So that language of that, and what that's responding to again is a traditional kind of what would be called like samkhya or like classical yoga, which they were like, yeah, it sucks here. Yeah, there's realms of pure form. Yeah, there's formless realm, and if you get to the edge. You're, you're gone. Moksha, they called it. Liberation. See ya. Have fun. Bye. And so liberation is over there. Right? It's not here. It's not now. It's over there. And in the classical yoga system, it is by, uh, by the will of Ishvara, Mahishvara. Ishvara is this idea of this like divine being, this higher being who actually is the one that gets you to liberation. So liberation is over there, and it's not by my knowledge, it's by Ishvara's great knowledge. Buddha is saying, no, no, here and now, by your knowledge. That is a pretty radical different idea. And the... Classical yoga system that preaches this idea of an exalted state of not of non-movement or whatever. That was it. In fact, anything of this world, let's get out of here. Come on. So all this chit-chat, no, no, let's get out of here. Meditate. The Buddha who claims, or the story is, is that he went there, took a look around, and was like, oh yeah. Nah, this is cool, but I'm going back. The idea of Buddhism is that the Buddha supposedly introduced this idea of, yeah, let's calm down, but then let's use that calm state of mind to consider this world we live in, consider ourselves in this world, and maybe, because that's what he did, see the dharmic relationships between these things, what's causing a self to think it exists, what's causing suffering, and 
basically the Four Noble Truths and the Dharma is here and now, by one's own knowledge, ending the suffering. That's radically new in a way. To put the power in your hands, to say, no, it can happen right here, right now, and to say that it can be done using the discriminatory mind, not running away from the discriminatory mind. So, different. Similar, but different. Yes? Okay, heartbeat. So, you've gotten this state, this complete, like the breath is even in. <laughs> uh-huh. Heartbeat. And how does that play into your initial topic of this argument of when do you come back? What brings you back from this state of Narada? Wouldn't it be that inadvertent desire that is formed by your own heartbeat? Um, so, uh, I don't know how, I can't really answer that, but anecdotally again. So anecdotally, there are stories of them getting ready to cremate the, what they thought was the deceased master when he comes out of the Samadhi and it was like, oh, but your heart was stopped. (laughs) Oh shit, but we thought you were dead. And uh, no, I was in Samadhi. So there is talk of a state of actual stillness that is even no heartbeat. Michael Talley <laughs> was, was talking about some Tibetan masters yeah. stopping their heart. Yeah. Right so it's, and it's spoken about a lot, and it would seem that that's potentially what happens there, but I would also, at the same time, because I believe in that those states are achievable. But at the same time, I'd actually want to refer to the sutra in this idea of that when he says, no, when you're in the formless realm, there is no grossly acquired body, meaning that Michael, he might jump in, in here and I'm here. Bye, see ya. You might be looking at this being like, but it's still beating, it's still respirating. Michael's in the formless realm being, but that ain't me. I'm not attached to what you're calling Michael. Michael's gone. So there could still be the respirating heart, breathing body, but karmically speaking, I'm in the formless realm in a state of stillness. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Cool. You go. I'm pretty cracking wise on that. You go. <laughs> um, just to what Robert was saying, it seems like being in one of those states would give you insight. Mm. So, if regardless of how you get there, which there seems to be some mystery about, mm-hmm. if you are in the realm of consciousness, wouldn't you get some insight just from being in that realm? So, real insight, real vipassana, requires the calming, requires it. But in terms of what you just said. This, this line where he says, it's right after he says that the, the, that the person that's in that state realizes mental activity is worse for me. Lack of mental activity is better. If I were to think or imagine anything, these subtle perceptions would rise in me. The idea being like, yeah, you might get an insight at the expense of your formless meditation. Right? And it's not to say that that doesn't happen, but what I'm saying is, is that the traditional route is that this is supposed to calm you down 
further, 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 further. And traditionally, it's not supposed to stimulate you. But that, that calm state of mind is necessary for insight work. Here. Uh, yeah, I guess, I, I don't know if I'm splitting hairs, but I feel like when you came back from that place, having been there, would give you insight. That's what I mean. In and of itself, okay. Oh, in and of itself. That, yeah, that splits hairs. I don't, yeah, I don't even know it that quite. Okay. Yeah. And then yeah. to, to Genevieve's question, is that the, the dude at Koyasan, is that what he's doing? Kukai is uh, embalmed, I believe, but they embalmed. Oh, embalmed. They they lacquer a lot. They embalm. Make offerings to him. Yeah, and he's in a Vajra Samadhi. A dead guy. No. Okay. He's in a Vajra Samadhi. I think I just said that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Nasty. I tell the uh, oh, you'd be dead in a couple months. To an old monkey, he starts drinking small amounts of lacquer, and he starts drinking more and more and more. He's drinking it. Yeah. And so he, they're shellacking him. He's preserving himself. From the inside. From the inside. Yeah. So uh, the Hui Nung, the sixth patriarch, uh, is famously lacquered. Uh, they say he's still alive in there in Avajra Samadhi. Kukai's in Avajra Samadhi. Yeah. And by the way, the same thing happens in, in Buddhism that happens in Christianity a lot, which these masters die and they don't stink. They smell like flowers. There's a lot of stories of both in Catholic saints and Buddhist saints that they die and they don't decompose and they give off good sense and all this stuff. And it's like, I don't know. There are a lot of people talking about that, you know, so, yeah. Okay, one more. I mean, the, the, I think the, the cool term there at the halfway point or whatever was just that, like, I think we're all in, in all those states at some point, just going about our day, sure. not, not realizing it. Like sometimes you are sort of in your gross body and you're hungry and you're operating from that and you're just like aware of those needs. Sometimes you're in this conceptual, like the shit I got to do for mm-hmm. this realm. Mm-hmm. And then ideally, you know, at some point you're also in these other realms mm-hmm. and it's sort of the discernment is the thing that's kind of riding the way all the way through. Absolutely. That's up the- to the top until there's no discernment. Yep. And then Buddha's <clears throat> answers to what's left after that What's the point of even trying to figure that out? Yep. I would just want to add to what you just said, because I'm with you 100%, is that in a way, you know, under here, we got the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, there. and the hell dweller realm. <laughs> Both of those. <laughs> Days, hours, weeks. So these are the thro- these are the three lower births that are also uh, you know this is a little Real more fuck, yeah. this is a little more Mahayana of course because the Theravada they think you have to wait till you actually die and actually get reborn as an animal, but the Mahayana they believe or the way they think of it is as a mental state like you just described, which is that when one is ruminating, not thinking, just sitting there, just going like. <sighs> whatever the whatever the craving is and whatever it is but just chewing the cud and not actually being a human and thinking about stuff writing a poem not exercising all those faculties well, but and, actually just doing that is between can I get the can I if it's drugs or whatever it's like do I have it or I don't have it yeah, that's I mean, your only discernment you know, like that's really all the world is to you at that point is like exactly especially I, so again from this Mahayana point of view the animal realm and the hungry ghost realm are just mental states. 
Again, just like you were saying, these are just mental states. This is just a mental state. Yeah, Tina. So, the, so you went at the King of Rock, and you are in a, 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 at the limit of perception with <laughs> yes. perception, no perception, blah, blah, not moving, no karma. And, and what is this, the karmic white thing that you were taught, the reset, or the, I don't know. So, what in the world do they mean by that? What they basically mean is that, without getting too into it, is that we all sort of have this tsunami of our past karma that's like right there, that we will all, in a way, have to deal with. That, the tsunami is gone in that sense. That's the basic idea of it is that we have this wave of past shit that's going to come up. But if we can make it to that realm, that kind of gets wiped out. That's the general idea. So the actual stillness cuts the ties? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that like the samskara conditioning? Yeah, it's actually kind of described as a samskara wipe. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're talking about perception, and that samskara is very accurate. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if I wanted to be actually really accurate, the general idea is actually all of these get wiped, meaning that even our fundamental re- reactions to things get rewiped. But it's more of a dependent origination thing at that point in terms of, you know, all of these are relating to each other in that way. But the, one, the real one seems to be our conditioning that gets wiped, our all these past associations with the world and past associations with things and what they mean and whether we like them, that's the tsunami I speak of. Not necessarily like I killed somebody five lifetimes ago and I'm going to have to deal with that. It's actually more of that we are so uh, through lifetime, either lifetime after lifetime or just after 45 years, I'm so conditioned to think of it this way, to think of myself this way that to arrive at that wipes that and I come out of it like, oh shit, like anything is possible kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. All right, that's it because I got to drive. Thank you all so much. Uh, little book on Samadhi, good book on Samadhi if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Otherwise, I'm here on Friday teaching the state of no-thingness. If you've been curious about what that is, I have a lot of things prepared to talk about. Uh, and after that, I'll be here back next Sunday with a new sutra. Any announcements from this for the thing? I'm going to be opening a shellac bar. You're going to shellac us up? <laughs> a, lacquer, a lacquer bar. That's funny. Special Fridays. Love it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, SFDC shellac.